Don't you want your continuing education to be fun and relatable? Well, today's guest, Jordan Litt, is the co-founder of CEUs by Study Notes ABA. We discuss how you can actually learn a lot from fellow colleagues, even when they don't have that dash D at the end of their credentials. We also talk about self-care and flexibility, which reminds me of a behavior bite. Toasts! One of my favorite foodie-based self-care acts is creating elaborate toast lunches with different combinations of ingredients. I practice flexibility in what I use based on what's currently in the house. It also helps me slow down and practice mindfulness as I methodically move through the preparation. I highly recommend incorporating this into your self-care routine, just like I recommend getting your CEUs from Study Notes ABA. Welcome to Behavior Bites with Rosie Eats, where we share a virtual meal with behavior analysts, psychologists, educators, and other helping professionals. Building a community can be hard when you're always pouring into others. So pull up a chair, grab your favorite food, and let's dig in. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Rosie, and I'm so excited to introduce today's guests. We met in 2020 after I told Casey from Study Notes ABA that I thought they should offer CEUs. And she responded, well, guess what? And introduced me to the person who was building Study Notes CEU program from the ground up. It's Jordan Litt. Hi, Jordan. Are you ready for our multi-course meal? Yeah, I'm excited. As always, let's start with our amuse-bouche. Today's chef whim is what's your beef with people teaching their dogs to use those talking dog buttons? Oh, oh, wow. For a little context, everyone, anytime I get any of those uh, button videos on my TikTok, I do send them directly to Rosie. Um, (laughs) What is my beef? So I love looking at how verbal behavior can be expanded and better understood. What I don't love is people extrapolating from those talking buttons. Also, I think the biggest thing that I have issue with too with those buttons is like, how are they being taught? Everyone always shows these videos on TikTok or Instagram and they're, I'm not going to name a specific Instagram account, but I'll just use my dog's name for an example. They'll be like, you know, moose, outside, sad, dog, why dog? Like, why does the dog have a why button? Like, I'm not saying that it can't eventually have a why button, I guess, if it's actually learning WH mans, but the buttons and how they're most likely taught to a dog is most likely different than how an AAC device and or PECs are being taught to, let's talk about populations behavior analysts typically work with, which are children, autistic children, children diagnosed with autism, however you want to kind of phrase it. Mm -hmm. And how I imagine that it's probably being taught is by treats, which is great, but that's not then teaching specific reinforcement that's specific to the mand which is what the man is all about. Like the man is motivated for something. So maybe I'm motivated to go for a dog outside. Then I'm going to man outside and then I'm going to get outside. But just thinking about that, how it would actually go is you're going to have the dog have multiple buttons so that they're not scrolling. How are Mm -hmm. they going to, how are you going to differentiate that? You're going to throw your dog outside and be like, okay, you asked for outside, you know, let's go outside or even... I've seen ones where like, they have like dog as a button. Like, why are we having the dog tacked? 
or are, are they demanding? Are they demanding for another dog? Are you able to produce that stimuli then that's contingent upon the motivation? How are you determining declarations of motivation? So I have a rescue dog. He's almost seven, which is crazy. And he is just kind of finding his voice. And what he'll do is he'll stand in front of something. So it would be like in that opportunity, if I were using buttons, I would definitely give him like toy box or ball or something and then teach that mm-hmm. man. But these mans are so extrapolated that it's difficult to suss out what are they getting treats for? Because then that man is not necessarily for why or dog. That man is for that treat. Right. So I don't know, it just doesn't sit well with, with my <laughs> brain. No, it's true. It's true. I know I, I went in for uh for a deeper question for this amuse bouche. It's definitely a, a a heavier one, which isn't inherently what amuse bouche is, but uh I just think it's such an interesting conversation that we have had so many times. And I find uh we're finding more and more behavior analysts um introducing these buttons. And I agree with you that they are kind of neat when they're used for outside or treat or um, a toy or really anything that's a man. But when I see like why or or sad, like emotions, and I'm like, I, I definitely believe that animals feel emotions. We can usually see it in their behavior. But when it's like, why outside, where dad sad? And I'm like, "Mm, how do you, how did you teach sad? And how is that reinforced besides uh, the pet owner's verbal behavior and themselves? Like responding like, oh, are you sad? And it's like, are they sad? Or is it being reinforced by their best friend, their owner, just talking to them and talking to them in a certain tone or it's just, it's, I'm for a lot of animal training and that one in the larger concept of having like 50 words, I'm just like, it gives me pause. I'll say that. I won't say it's completely negative, but it gives me pause. Pun not intended. <laughs> I was going to say P-A-W-S. <laughs> yeah, and I, I agree. Like, I think we can totally teach, if you think about it, like if I say certain words like moose and all the animal activists don't come after me, like we do give moose a greenie every night. It is the one non-organic thing that he gets. <laughs> we give him a greenie every night. If we say, oh, you want a greenie? He knows what that word is. He like, you know, if I gave him, if I said you want a greenie and I gave him a treat, he would continue to sit outside of like right in front of the cabinet where we keep his greenies. Like he, he's able to Mm -hmm. discriminate greenie and treat. Now, do I think he would then be able to mand? I don't know how else I would teach it except for going into a full on man training, which then Mm -hmm. brings us to the point of the why or the sad or the emotions. It's like, if we're thinking about this from an ABA, like autism classroom example, we're not going to teach why and sad right away. We might label, oh, it looks like you're feeling really sad right now. Maybe mm-hmm. if our is crying or looks visibly upset, you might label that behavior. And then eventually then that can be utilized in context of a man. But good man training is always going to be teaching multiple, teaching discrimination between multiple different mans simultaneously. And you always right. want to do it where 
you always want to typically start where it's like a physical item. And then you can get in many man training trials and then many opportunities. And with many dogs, what, what I also know from training, like Moose, again, is like Moose is a highly reactive, a dog reactive, which is a fancy, nice term for dog aggressive <laughs> dog. Mm-hmm. Doesn't like many other dogs. But then when I'm watching him and I'm we're training him, there's only so much training that he can do in a day. Unlike humans, mm-hmm. we're not to open up a whole new can of worms about like how long should sessions be? How long should school be? That's for definitely another time. But like, <laughs> if you're looking at it, good dog training happens in 10 to 15 minutes. And unless you're mm-hmm. doing 15 minutes, like eight times a day, you're probably not really doing man training rather just training the dog. Oh, if I press this button, something good is going to happen. <laughs> Work with an individual that's utilizing PECs or an AAC device. And they're just, they're just, we call it scrolling, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're right. like bathroom outside, why sad bathroom outside, why sad? And you're like, okay, they're scrolling through responses. So none of these responses have been taught in discrimination mm-hmm. or even with PECs when you're picking up different PECs cards or even sign individuals that sign. And we call it like right. a third base coach. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're sliding their hand up and down their arm. Uh, they're, mm-hmm. they're tapping their head. They're going, they're scrolling through responses. And I don't know. For me, it just gets me where I'm like, oh my God. And then there's like hundreds of thousands of people that are following this account and be like, this dog is so smart. This dog's even in a study. Like it's doing this or their mm-hmm. brain is different. Like, I don't really necessarily think that this one dog brain is different. Right. I'm pretty sure the button company is one of the like funders of the study. Oh. Something See, like that. and that's, that's where our philosophic doubt has to come into play because at least in the videos I've seen, with the dogs it's like oh they're sad that dad is gone why is dad gone and they'll answer it whereas with our children that might be scrolling on an AAC device they're not going oh they're sad that they have to go to the bathroom and they want to know why they have to go to the bathroom you know like we're not pulling out sentences for these kids who who might just be scrolling. I mean, they might be putting a sentence together, but it's the quickness that people are to jump to have these dogs have full paragraphs <laughs> compared to our kids. It's like, there's just, there's so many pieces missing. Yeah. And I don't want to like, I know we we have a bunch of other things, but I did, That's I did okay. my verbal behavior by BF Skinner book. And like, when I, when you're looking at it, like a lot of the things that Skinner is saying, the biggest thing that my takeaway from this is that, yeah, things don't have to look typically like one word mans, they can be multi-word mans, but it has to be specific to the motivation. And again, right. how teach a dog why to press a button without giving them a treat. Right. Like that to me is just like, what, what are you, what are you getting to evoke that response? Also, we never know from those videos, like there are videos where like a dog is like looking for something or saying like upstairs, sad or upstairs, angry or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, their ball is upstairs. Then the dog went to go upstairs to get the ball. And they're like, this dog is so smart. Now it has the ball. And now it's pressing like six buttons. And one of them happens to be ball. So I will say I do not have a dog. The amount of dog training I have is when I'm at a client's house and I have a couple seconds because the dog is jumping on me, I really enjoy teaching them to sit. But in terms of of animal training, like I have trained my cats and I remember teaching my oldest cat 
demanding for going outside and like appropriate sitting when he gets his harness on because he only goes outside with a harness and and he's leashed and everything and I remember kind of like walking through that myself of like well I could give him a treat for like nice sitting but I'm like then is he going to like try to grab his leash uh because he wants a treat whereas I'm trying to make it be controlled by the reinforcement of just going outside and I think it's all in line with like the buttons I think especially with dogs, they have so many different reinforcers that they're like, I press the button because I wanted a treat, but I like going outside too, or. I'll take it. That's why we don't want to teach like what uh, many people will call like omnibus mans right away Mm -hmm. are working with an individual trying to help them increase their verbal behavior repertoire. That's why like I will die on this hill of like, we're not going to teach more or thank you or yes or no right away. Please. Yeah is another big one. It's like, that Mm. is not important to that individual at the moment. Yes, of course, we're going to eventually get that in. But in the moment, you have to teach the stuff, the important stuff that they want all the time. And I, there's a part that really wants to buy the buttons and then just see, like, can I teach them Moose this? But Moose has such a high history of scrolling through his own. Like, if you tell him sit, he'll sit and then he'll lay down. And then uh-huh. he'll pop back up and he'll give you a paw because he's like, one of these things gets me a treat. <laughs> paw took us forever to teach with him. It was so crazy. And then I tried teaching him a whole other ones, like be shy. He hated because you're supposed to put like tape on their nose and they're supposed to like paw. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to eventually like, like it's like a little tiny piece of tape. And right. you're supposed to teach them that. And he hated that so much. I was like, okay, you know, we're done. We're done with that. We'll just stick with our basics. And then I realized he's not even listening to my vocal SD when I say sit, like in a listener response. He's mm-hmm. not really listening because if I say to him like siéntate, which is sit in Spanish, and I do the hand motion of sit, which is just like raising my hand up over his head, he'll still sit. Or if I put out mm-hmm. my pata, which means his paw, then he does it, but he's not listening to my vocal SD. He's just right. walking It's definitely a good tangent. I think that we could keep on going off of, but we need to get to our main meal. So for our first appetizer, how did you get into behavior analysis in general? A long story short, um, I got into it because I had a family friend. Um, We would go out to dinner with them all the time. I probably was in middle school. Yeah, it was probably in like seventh or eighth grade. We went out to dinner and it was like an Italian restaurant and Italian restaurants, at least in New York, I don't know if this is like a global thing, but they always have like a a case where it's like meats in one and desserts in another. And there's like that little tiny, like metal, almost like reflective looking bottom piece. And the whole dinner, my family friend was just like making funny faces in it, kind of dancing. (laughs) What I, I didn't know was called stimming, but he was stimming on the metal piece all dinner. And I remember we got home and I said to mom, why does Ryan do that? They were like, oh, Ryan has autism. And that's like a little bit of like circular reasoning, but you know, we'll we'll leave that for another time. And they're like, yeah, Ryan has autism. He does things a little differently. And I'm like, oh, what's autism? Like, let me learn about it. And I had always kind of been that person that like was, I would say like a nurturing, like a chatty kid in class, but I would always be like nurturing to like the rest of my classmates. Like if anyone needed a pencil, like, you know, whatever. And so mm-hmm. I remember being like, oh, like I already have been doing like a lot of extracurriculars where I'm working with different kids and this would be interesting. So 
Fast forward a few years, again, we're at dinner with the same family and his parents say to my dad, you know, you're really involved in the community. Like my dad used to be the coach of everything for me. And the only other places for us to do school activities for Ryan are really far away. They're like an hour away. So that's like three mm. hours on Sunday, which is just like, it's a lot of driving and it's a lot of, you know, back and forth. And we'd love for something local. And my dad was like, all right, let's do it. My dad and my uncle were like, okay, my uncle started a baseball. And my dad started basketball. My dad actually still does it every Sunday. It's like the highlight. Of his- um, my dad has no training in special education. Like <laughs> he, and he just loves it. And it's really fun for him. And my whole family really enjoyed like we're a big sports family. So it was really easy to connect with a lot of the, I don't even know what we call them. We call them our friends, which is like kind of weird in hindsight, but we call them <laughs> our friends. Like, I like loved playing sports and it was so fun for me to be able to play like my buddy. Oh, my buddy. That's what we called him. My buddy was Ryan. So it was so fun for me because I already knew him. Mm-hmm. We spent time together and I learned a lot about him. And there was this, always this teacher that came around. His name was Steve. Maybe that's not his name, but whatever. He would come to like these events and like kind of be like, oh, actually when he gets a little angry like that, just like take a minute, let him regroup and then tell him to do that thing again. So that was like my first experience with somebody in the ABA field. I didn't Mm -hmm. know what he was at the time. Like I didn't know about licensure certifications. And so I just kept working with the autistic population in different ways throughout high school and college. And then toward the end of college, I was like, okay, I don't want to be a teacher because then you can't go abroad junior year. And I really wanted to live in a different country. <laughs> I don't want to lose this experience because I have to do student teaching. This is literally what right. my 19 year old brain. And so I then didn't go abroad. And I was like, what else could I do? So I I studied psychology and social work in college. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to apply for Teach for America. And I was like, super amped about it. I was like, oh my God, I'm like the quintessential candidate. My world got rocked. I did not get accepted. I was like, oh my God, this is so upsetting. So I'm like, oh, I have to apply to grad schools. And then I was trying to figure out like, what am I going to apply? I want to be like this Ryan's teacher. I just don't know what it's called. And there wasn't really like the BACB, I think had just been founded around the time that I had met Ryan's teachers, like in the mm-hmm. early 2000s. So there wasn't mm-hmm. really like, ACBAs weren't like, that wasn't like a common term. One, just, yeah, like widely like, talked about. Yeah. And so I applied to a bunch of special ed programs. This is just, it was so funny how I like ended up becoming a behavior analyst. So I applied to a bunch of special ed programs got into the University of Texas in Austin and they were like, okay, you can't get into our autism program, but there are so many people that want the autism program that we're actually going to give everyone in early childhood special ed an opportunity to take the BCBA exam. We're going to give you an extra Hmm. semester of courses. So you'll fill the credentials to sit for the exam. Like, I don't know what that is, but okay, let's do it. (laughs) I trust you. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, okay, whatever. All there's like 10 and 10 of us that are doing this. Like it's not a dual, it wasn't a dual program at all. It was just early childhood special ed. And then we had like a semester. So at least called it like a specialty of autism Mm -hmm. abilities. And so that's when I literally first learned like in grad schools, when I first learned what a BCBA was, that's when I worked at my first clinic. Um, and that was really like my formal introduction into behavior analysis. But prior to that, I had like no idea what it was called. I feel like that's, it's not a common story anymore. I feel like we could track it back to like a certain year when things start flipping. The student analysts that I talk to today that are like, oh yeah, I knew this all my life. I wanted to be a BCBA and this is what I'm doing. And then the people on the other side of the year (laughs) that are like, I don't know. I just knew I kind of wanted to do this. And I followed a bunch of random paths 
to what I do today. And I remember being so devastated when I got rejected from Teach for America, but in hindsight, it was like the best thing that could have, <laughs> they could have ever done for me. They did me a huge favor. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I'm not really a religious person, but I definitely believe in like the universe pointing people in certain directions or bringing certain things into their lives. And especially in this field, I feel like there's always something for me, like when I graduated, I couldn't even find a teaching job or, you know, there's been so many different people that this has happened to. And it's like, because the universe is just like, you need to go do this and like shoves us in the opposite direction. I did try my hand at teaching for a school year and I got my butt kicked. <laughs> like, not that I ever didn't appreciate teachers. Right. I am very type A, but I'm not type A teacher creative. Like I'm type A behavior analytic good. Like I'm mm-hmm. great as a behavior analyst being type A. I make my Excel documents. I organize all of my shit. Oh, sorry. Um, and, <laughs> but to be in a teacher and write lesson plans, at least in New York state, it has to be with the common core curricula. I was like, right. Yeah of my depth. They were like, have thematic lessons with all of your kids' IEP goals. I was like, what? And they're like, look at this teacher. She does it really well. Look at that teacher. She does it really well. I was like, I'm coming in at like seven o'clock in the morning. I was leaving at like seven o'clock at night. I was there for like 12. I was like, I Mm -hmm. still can't, can't procure it. And I remember that the, the like admin at the time was like, remember in your like grad school when you would write lesson plans? I was like, oh, we never wrote lesson plans in my grad school. (laughs) And they were like, what do you mean? You have an uh, you have a master's degree in early childhood special ed. And I'm like, yeah, but it was focused on the PCPA exam. And like that promise that like it gets better, like every year it gets a little bit better because you have something to like work off of. And it's like, and, and I will say this is very similar to um, behavior analyst work because we make programs, you know, and then we can kind of, change them for each student uh, or each client. But then in in the school, it's like, but no, you have to have lesson plans for six different classes a day and all their different IP goals or their learning styles. Or if you're being pulled into like sub for someone else or so it's like that promise that like it gets better each year just it was a little that. too, to make it like behavioral, like it's a little too like delayed reinforcement, <laughs> delayed discounting of like, but when later, like one year or are we t- saying 15 years? <laughs> I give all the credit in the world to those that are teaching in classrooms because I tried it and I survived it, but I just, I was like, oh, this is not for me. Which is good because that affirms that Teach for America probably wouldn't have been the best fit. Right. The kind of going back to what you're saying. Yeah, like I agree. Like I don't know whose plan it is or where where the plan came from, but just happy it happened. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, I agree. I agree. So kind of on that same topic, our second appetizer is what's something you wish um, you could have told yourself when you were just getting started? That's a good question. I think... The biggest thing is to work on flexibility. As I mentioned, like I'm very, I don't even know like what type A really means anymore. I just like to have things organized. I like to know when things are coming up. I like to know, like I like to be able, in grad school, I would lay out every single thing that I had due for the entire semester. All of my like cohort was like, you're crazy, but can you send me that document, please? Um, (laughs) And so I like, I just like when I can have things like 
laid out really nicely and mm-hmm. kind of know what to expect. But that honestly was probably a big disservice I did to myself because working in clinics, working in schools, you know, even even the work that I do at and on the CEU side of study notes at ABA, I find myself having to really remind myself, like work on your flexibility, work on your flexibility. I always think of the the meme of the dog where there's like the fire everywhere. And it's like, <laughs> fine. Like, I feel like in our field, that is something very much that you have to like flexibility and being mm-hmm. adaptive and knowing that like, it's probably going to be hectic and maybe some days are not going to be re- rewarding and maybe not, let me be realistic. Maybe it's some months or quarters or semesters mm-hmm. or even that are not rewarding but at the end of the day just relying on it'll be fine we'll get it done we'll figure it out and if it doesn't get done then I need to ask for help and that was something that I I also really struggled with was like asking for help I was very much the type of person where it's like I can do this if somebody gives me a responsibility like I'm on it I'll pay Mm -hmm. attention I will get it done and then there were so many things especially in the classroom when I had no idea how to meld common core curricula, IEPs, and a thematic lesson plan for April that had to do with like recycling and the environment. Like that for me was just <laughs> so difficult, but I, right. in those settings, I really had to work on, okay, it's not going to be good. Like I have to like stop some of my like perfectionist tendencies. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be perfect. Your PowerPoint may look terrible sometimes. Mm-hmm. And boards are never going to be thematic. <laughs> those are just things I had to let go. I was like, but yeah, I think being flexible and and being okay with being flexible. And then I guess also taking stock of things that are not great and bothering mm-hmm. you and figuring out like, is it, do I need to focus more on self-care? Do I need to focus more on taking time off? Like that's something I never did also taking time mm-hmm. off. Um, and I would just be like, I'm here every day. I'm here early. I stay late. And right. then perfect person. attendance award. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like I remember, yeah, I remember at a, one of the clinics I worked at, they were like, wow, you have the best attendance out of every staff member. I'm like, yeah, it's like my crippling, like <laughs> my perfectionist tendencies that are like, you can't be late. Like you have to be there every day. Mm-hmm. Like pre COVID, even if I was really sick, I would go. Right. Mm-hmm. I, you know, would I will never forget. I was doing a consultation in a school classroom and I was so sick. I went through like three boxes of tissues in that classroom. I was like so embarrassed. I probably mm-hmm. should have stayed home. Right. But COVID, you weren't allowed to be like, oh, I'm not I'm feeling sick. Mm-hmm. I'm sick. Like I probably got sick from one of those kids, but like I probably shouldn't have gone back there. And all right. I had, like I had a thing of tissues and Purell like next to me. And every time I blew mm-hmm. my nose, I was like Purell like my hands. And the teacher was fortunately like so nice and like just she got it she was like I've I've literally been there where you're just but that that's another thing it's like you gotta take sick days that's what they're for I think you hit the nail on the on the head with the flexibility because even everything you said afterwards still kind of falls into that flexibility so being flexible with your schedule changes being flexible with um other people being sick, being flexible to when you're sick and you need to take time off, being flexible to ask other people for help. I think a lot of behavior analysts are rigid and we get very stuck in our ways. And then we push our clients to be, you know, flexible and adaptable when we're like, no, you have to do it this, you have to be flexible this way, client A, you know? I feel like also when I started, I, w- I was rigid and always going to work. I remember one day 
also being very sick and probably should not be going to work. And I had taken, I was on the like NyQuil, DayQuil rotation and I accidentally took NyQuil and I realized it as soon as I stepped out of the shower, I was just like, wait, did I? And I like ran back to the box and looked and I did that because I had the like dye free one. That's why I didn't have the the SD of the orange or the green or bluish color. So they were dye free, but then I looked at the box and realized And so I had to tell my supervisor and the family like, oh, I accidentally took the wrong allergy medicine because I also was trying to pretend like I wasn't sick. And then I didn't go to work because I literally, I was like, I'm going to fall asleep in in the next 30 minutes. Whereas I could have just called out and slept without having to like accidentally drug myself. (laughs) Being out of that, that clinical and school setting right now, like I have not had to take as much medication as I used to have to take. And I think it's because I don't feel well, then I'll like lay in bed and I'll get my Mm -hmm. heat or I'll take care of myself. And I feel like self-care is such a buzzword, but it's like, we were just talking about those under eye that mask things, Mm -hmm. little things that I just never did because I didn't have time. But now in hindsight, knowing how easy it is to pick up good self-care habits, if Mm -hmm. I work go back into the in-person kind of facing world, I would be much more equipped. And I feel like stronger at being at using my time off and working on that flexibility piece, because that is definitely a skill. There are some people that I guess are just born flexible um, physically. And I guess mentally (laughs) where I was just like, I have to be the best. I like, maybe it's not competitive playing sports. Like you got to keep saying, you got to keep working at it. But yeah, definitely calling out saying that you're sick or even like a mental health day you know like people need mental health days I was just talking about one of the like cycles of burnout is people that are only fulfilling one of the three things that you need to do so one is rest and usually people feel burnt out and so then they finally call out and they rest But then they're lacking the other two, which is recharging. So doing something to fill your cup back up or bring joy to your, you know, to yourself, whether that's like taking a hike or trying a new food place or spending time with loved ones, you know, recharging. And then the third one is constantly looking at your values and your why of why you're doing this job. So is is it just a job? Is it just a paycheck? That can be really hard. There's some people that can just do that as long as maybe you don't burn out because then you can just leave it at the door when you leave. But I think a lot of people go into this field for bigger reasons than just money. So why? Is it because you like man training? Do you like when you can teach a parent something new? Do you like, um, does it fill your joy when a client uses their words? And I mean that like vocally, pecs, AAC, sign, you know, they're able to communicate like, what's your why behind it? And if you're missing one of those three, you're just gonna, you're gonna turn into a little burnt up crispy French fry. So... (laughs) I feel like so many people have so many different reasons for coming into behavior analysis and trying to do things better for other people. But I love, I love the saying of, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. And in, in a past life, I always say that I used to teach yoga 
I've, I say it past life because it feels like so long ago. But I remember when I was teaching yoga and working in a classroom and I would have to like run out of the classroom the second that school ended, get on two to three subways to get to where I taught yoga. So I used to teach in Manhattan and I would have to get to Brooklyn to teach yoga. And I remember getting there and, and explaining to another yoga teacher like, oh, I just, and again, we didn't have the word burnout then, but I essentially driving burnout. And I remember her saying, well, why don't you just not teach yoga then? Not in a rude way, but just like a, this is not feeling your cup up. And why are you doing it? And I was like, wow, I can do that. I can just not do stuff. <laughs> and, and that that to me was like the biggest eye opener. I just needed another like adult, I guess, to be like, oh no, no we don't have to do everything anymore. Like you don't. Well, speaking of New York, let's jump into our palate cleanser course. What is your favorite quintessential New York dish? Pizza. So I've lived in Michigan. I've lived in Texas. I have family in Florida. So I've spent a lot of time in Florida. And pizza is something that I learned. They do not do as good as they do in New York in Michigan. And Texas has other foods that it should shine at. <laughs> yeah. And I, obviously New York is like, you know, more, more or less like pizza and oh, bagels too. Well, both of them, when I lived in Texas, my parents sent me like bagels and I would freeze them. Like literally mm -hmm. they would send bagels or I would come back from visiting my family in New York when I still lived in Texas and just fill a suitcase with like bagels and like cream cheese. And like, I always had like a hot gold bag on the plane. This was before they got really strict with having like three carry-ons, quote unquote. Right, right. But yeah, that was pizza and bagels were two things. And I feel like those are like the most quintessential New York right. foods. But I, there are things I miss, like really good Mexican food in, in Texas and mm. really good like Greek and like Middle Eastern food in like Michigan. Like mm. they definitely, I mean, obviously there are pockets of New York because New York is such a melting pot right. um, of different people coming from different places and, and a lot of them opening restaurants and having, you know, authentic food. But yeah, pizza and bagels are my my two dishes, I would say. So when I was running this by uh, my husband, Alan, that's what we said. We're just like pizza and bagels. She's going to say either one or both of those. And then he said cheesecake because I guess there's a, a New York cheesecake. I mean, I love a good cheesecake, but I don't. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. And I only say that my I will go with the basics just because I've lived elsewhere. And mm -hmm. my favorite things. I mean, carbs and cheese. You can't go wrong. Raph and I like try and only get pizza like once a week, but sometimes if we're like running errands and we walk, there's so many pizza places around us and there's mm -hmm. so many good ones that like sometimes he'll go and get a slice and I'll be like, oh, can I have a bite? Like, I don't want my own slice. I just want a few bites of yours um, <laughs> kind of thing. And we're just like, just give me some bread, slap some marinara on it. Give me cheese, put it in any way. I'll have a grilled cheese and tomato soup. That's like mm -hmm. another favorite, but I, that's not like quintessential New York. But right. yeah, give me, give me tomato, give me cheese and give me bread. Any combination. <laughs> See, the thing is, is I'm hungry and now I want pizza and bagels. Uh, let's jump into our entree. So I just have one big entree today. I thought we could get into uh, your role at the CEUs at Study Notes ABA. So you're a co-founder that started in 2020. So how did that even come to be? Like, what's the story behind that? So Liat, Liat Sachs, she is the founder of the test prep of Study Notes ABA, the co-founder of the Study Notes ABA app, and my uh, co-founder with me in the CEUs. And 
uh, Liat got into this really accidentally. I'll back up a little. So I used to go to these things called clothes swaps. I don't know if they're like well-known, so I'll give it a little mm-hmm. bit of an introduction. A clothes swap is when you have a bunch of clothes that you're probably going to donate, throw away, or resell, and you get you meet up with a bunch of other people, and mm-hmm. then you just you swap all, you literally just swap all your clothes. It was a really cool thing. I feel like it was very, yeah. in a very Austin type thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I would do this, and I was at a clothes swap with a bunch of these these girls that I met and someone had asked me what I did. And I said, oh, I'm studying for the BCBA exam. That's, you know, give them the whole spiel about it. And they're like, oh, you work with kids. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Fine. Um, And then they said, oh, this girl that I know from high school, she does that C A A B C D thing that you do. And I'm like, A B C D E F G. My dad's like, you're do the ABC stuff. I was like, sure. No problem. Fine. (laughs) And I was like, I do do the ABC stuff too. That's just not right. my like. And so this girl like got me and Liat into a Facebook message chat. And, and she was like, oh, you should meet Liat. I went to high school with her, whatever. So we're talking. And a big thing in Austin, because I, I keep kosher, a big thing in Austin was when you meet somebody, they typically want to, let's go get barbecue. Let's go get drinks. Let's go get Mexican food, which is really great. Except I would always have to lead the next thing with, okay, but I keep kosher. So I can only eat kosher meat. I can eat out with you, but I just, barbecue is probably not going to be the best spot right. for us to like, hang out for the first time. And so I remember saying that to Liat and then she like immediately called me. She was like, what's your number? What's your number? Like, I need to call you. And I was like, Okay, coming on. Um, she's like, I'm kosher. And like, and then we found out she lived, we lived in different apartment complexes, but they were next to each other on the same street. Oh, wow. And so then we like became friends so quickly, mm-hmm. um, which in Austin, it wasn't that weird because every, a lot of people that I knew were not from Austin. So everyone's kind of in the same boat where it's like, I'm going to meet as many people as I can. I'm going to see which people I kind of get along best with. And then I go mm-hmm. from there. And so, I remember we like realized we lived next to each other that I was studying for the BCBA exam and she was finishing up her courses at FIT. And, mm-hmm. and before I had the term burnout, I was describing that I just felt that way. I just felt right. like I was very underprepared for the BCBA role, even though I was sitting and about to test for it. Mm-hmm. And she used to make me like, we. she had a whiteboard in her room and we used to teach each other the concept. So I always joke that I was like the first actual collective prior to the collective being formed. Um, And then long story short, uh, we just remained really good friends. And we, it was like the first, I feel like genuine ABA friendship that I had, where it wasn't just because we worked together or we were in grad Mm -hmm. school together. Like this was like a friend. So that was really nice to find somebody that you just have like kind of the same energy level. I mean, our energy levels are definitely different, but they like mesh well together. Mm-hmm. And so forever, you know, we were always talking about, oh, we would want to do something together. And I was not hundred percent planning to move back to New York, but I pro- I knew that my time in Austin was kind of winding down. Mm-hmm. Uh, my room of three years, she was leaving to go move in with her boyfriend in Houston, who's now her husband. So that, that went well. So that was good that she left me for, <laughs> for a, a good reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like, okay, you know, maybe it's time to go back. I was spending all of talking about PTO, spending all my PTO flying back to New York. So Liat and I stayed in touch. We would have like quote unquote business meetings. She would come to New York to visit her sister. And then we'd spend a day together. Mm-hmm. We'd have business meetings like eating takeout on my couch, trying to figure out what we could do. We can't open a clinic that's in two different states. It's right. difficult to do one. So how can we do this? And 
by accident, but also again, universe, um, Leah got really sick and then ended up having to relearn how to study for the BCBA exam multiple, multiple times. And the only way she remember it was kind of, and this is like the, if you've never heard of study notes ABA, it's like our real raw and relatable way to remember behavior analytic mm-hmm. content. She had to really make that memorable because every time she went to the hospital, they would give her painkillers and there's like a immense brain fog that comes right. with that. So then by accident, you know, she made a, an account called study notes ABA on Instagram and people wanted to study with her. And that whole time she was like, I want us to work together. I want us to work together on this. Let's do this. And I wasn't really ready for a while. I, I felt like I just needed more time to do a lot more hands-on work. Mm-hmm. I wanted to feel better in understanding my like in my understanding of the science, I wanted to have that experience really so that I could then pull, if I were going to do something on my own, then it was like the right time. And the right time came in January, 2020, where we started, I was in, uh, I went to Australia on a family trip. And I remember in Australia, I was like, okay, do you want to do this? Should we start this in January? She was like, I want to do it. Let's do it. So I was like, okay, let's do it. Let's build CEUs. Um, by then I had had experience seeing how CEUs were run, seeing how you needed to categorize the information, seeing how you needed to save stuff, what mm-hmm. what caliber of teaching of content is a CEU. Because I always felt like I was never the right person to teach a CEU. Mm-hmm. And I learned over time that that's a really like sad thing for our field because our field is should be based in dissemination. Right. We're not we're bad enough doing it to the outside world, outside of behavior analysis, but we're also not great at doing it within because at least my feeling was always that if I didn't have like a D after the BCBA in my name, who am I to teach this? And so it was the perfect storm of of time. And we started building it. We really had no idea how we were going to do it. It was a trial and error. Uh, I would just read the ACE provider handbook over and over again and like perseverate on, okay, well, if we're going to make a website, it has to have like a decently perfect auditing system because my Mm -hmm. biggest fear getting audited and then not having that stuff easily accessible. So it took us like a year to build our website because I just had so many criteria that I wanted it to meet because I knew that people loved studying with study notes. And I was worried that there would be so many people and then we'd, our account would be like flagged or something like that, which still could, um, it still could happen. Still not, not that I don't think about. And so we really just, we built it. We tried to figure it out. And then somebody named Rosie came along (laughs) through my inbox and was really the first person. I got to say, you, you were like the first person to really buy in and, and, and support us in this. You were one of our first, I think you were the first live CEU that we ever did. That was with our content contributor division. Mm -hmm. And that was you. And that was so exciting. It was so fun. And it's crazy that it's almost like three years later. Yeah, it was really just trying to figure it out. And there's still, it's funny because Liat and I meet once a week and we always talk about things. And even still, we're still having like similar conversations of how can we make things better? How can we all Mm -hmm. just be better? And that's something that's really helped my flexibility is being better, not the best. Like I need Mm -hmm. to be better than Mm -hmm. yesterday or a month ago, not even yesterday anymore. I've given up being better than yesterday. and be better than like a month ago and better is really I guess a subjective term but just growing and learning and taking feedback like if you want real honest feedback you got to give people a way where they don't have to tell it to your face so in 
of all of our CEUs have like evaluations and people are honest. They're brutally honest. As they should be. Tell me that you don't like this example that I provided. And then I get to grow and I get to learn why that example might not have been the best. And then the next time I teach a topic, then I have to change that example or I have to acknowledge why my example may be flawed in some way, shape or form. That's a really good point because, yeah, because I think I probably reached out the middle of 2020, late 2020, and I was just like, hi, I I don't know. Like Casey told me to email you and I want to start making CEUs. And, and then you, I think you emailed me back like in less than 24 hours, like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. And I had no experience, but I was, I was living in my, my values back to values of just putting myself out there in, in, I think I made the goal in 2019 and then it just kind of carried on through the pandemic. Cause I was like, well, I'm not going to make another goal because I'm just trying to survive and <laughs> meet whatever goals I come up with. I think what you said about, you didn't say imposter syndrome, but that's, that's kind of like the underlying thing that I was getting that we think just because we don't have, you know, DR in front of our names or the the D at the end of our BCBA that our teaching, our life experience, our knowledge isn't valid, as valid as someone like that. And the more CUs that I've taken, I like the ones that aren't always from a doctor because I think they're just more relatable and more true to like how I practice in my clinical work. And then I've seen a lot of people go on to get their doctorate. And I think it's because we've kind of been okay with not everyone already having it and learning from them. And then the feedback piece, <laughs> I'll just never forget. Cause I was so scared on my first one. You did so well. It was people. People still like love that. So funny enough, um, it just popped up on my my Instagram actually that this day, the day that we're recording, this day two years ago is when I presented. But the feedback, the feedback was all really good. But the two comments that always stick out was one said like not enough examples. And then the second one said too many examples, something along those lines. And it kind of ties back to the flexibility of like, just being open and flexible that not everyone's going to be happy or completely satisfied with what you do, but you just put your best out there. And I'm, I'm trying to be good at still like self-promoting like my work that I've put out there. I just, I just did another like re-up on my Instagram of like, oh yeah, by the way, people, I did this two years ago. You can, you can take it if you want. (laughs) Yeah. That like also ties into some of the things that I found like difficult in this new role. Cause I felt like when I was in a clinic or I was in a school, I knew what I had to do regardless of how much work it was. I knew that in like December and May progress reports were expected, mm-hmm. or you had, you know, authorizations for this client by then or this goal or uh, like a report done or like this. And in the CEUs, it's, you have to be able to look exactly what you're saying. Like somebody says not enough examples and then somebody says too much. And and you have to look at almost like the median. Did I mm-hmm. make the majority of people happy? And that is something that I think that this role has really taught me because I, 
on top of being perfectionist, maybe this fits in with the perfectionist tendencies is a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. And I just, I always want people to feel the same way about things that I do. And that's something that I'm working on. I'm like, not everyone's going to like be as amped about something as you are. And you have to be okay with that. And so I think that that's helped me too, because when I taught the behavior bootcamp series, which is the series of courses that I made on the CEU website, Mm -hmm. that I did it with the Snabba people first. And I was like, I want all of your honest feedback. Give Mm -hmm. me everything that you've got. And somebody was like, listen, I really love what you're saying, but your slides are like, there's too much shit on them. Mm -hmm. Like there's way too much stuff on them. (laughs) And it's distracting, honestly. And I'm like, what do you mean it's distracting? Like I've sat in, like my first gut punch was like, well, I've sat in CEUs where there's a ton more work. Like I didn't get defensive there, but in my head, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, this is what a CEU is. And then I've really had to kind of take stock in that and say, well, if that's the report that I'm getting from somebody that's really not getting anything out of, well, they're getting CEUs out of this, but like not, (laughs) you know, they have no reason to just say something just to say it. They're trying to help me. And that's something too, that I've had to learn is that like, feedback, it's different when you're not getting it done in a performance management style. Like Mm -hmm. I think that I was so used to getting feedback in a rubric way where I knew, okay, these are the criteria that I'm most likely going to have to hit. Mm -hmm. So then I can put my imposter syndrome aside because I already kind of know what is expected of me. But when things are not expected, that's really difficult because then that really presses on my ability to be flexible and to understand that, okay, that person didn't like it. This person did like it. That person didn't like it because of X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, and I remember when we first got the first evaluations, I said to Liat, should I reach out to the people that didn't like the course? She was like, no, they already told you you didn't, they didn't like it. What's wrong with you? And I'm like, I can't, I can't. Why would you punish like yourself? <laughs> she was like, come on, have you ever gotten an email from like, have you ever said to like sent an evaluation or feedback somewhere? Like, oh, like I, you know, have had horror stories of like flying. I feel like these days everyone's had like, you know, spent mm-hmm. like a day in an airport kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, like we obviously gave negative feedback to like Delta or JetBlue or whoever we were flying. Right. And like, never reach back out. <laughs> <laughs> or like, if you give a bad Yelp review, like most times they'll just like comment, like, we are sorry you had this experience. Come in next time for 5% off. Right. It's like, it's like no one really is going to do that like second leg and having to then wait till the next time I taught or like the next time somebody took my class to get feedback was like really another test in flexibility, mm-hmm. imposter syndrome, um, you know, <laughs> both of those combined. <laughs> so I feel like you told us some struggles that you encountered. How about some rewarding aspects of starting this up? I've met so many people um, from across the United States and beyond, like there are people in Canada, Australia, Bahrain, the UK, like just all around the world that I've been able to now connect with and speak to because of this. And that is so cool. Cause I remember when I was still in clinics and schools and Liat started doing the test prep portion of study notes, ABA, like the whole time, I remember being like, how does she know all of these people? Or how does she know what's going on in in Montana or Wyoming Mm -hmm. or here? Like I felt like in a clinic, I was rightfully so, like I had to be bubbled in that sense because I could only, my cup was only, had only so much to pour from. But being in this role, I feel like I've met so many people from everywhere and that's been really cool. And that also allows me to ask questions, little questions like, 
oh, when you're doing discrete trial training, for example, are you doing mass trialing or are you doing like one-time probes? Mm-hmm. And and seeing that even geographically, which this is like a, not a beef that I have right now with our science, but it's definitely a place we're lacking in dissemination is that there are so many different styles of people implementing ABA depending on geographically where they are, which is a little bit concerning. And I always use this analogy and I never know if this is a good analogy or not. So maybe Mm -hmm. you'll let me know. Your listeners will let me know. Because I think about if I went to like a neurosurgeon, I'm going to assume that they have all the same baseline of information Mm -hmm. of procedure. Now, obviously there are going to be a ton of neurosurgeons that have a lot of specialties and they can do this. I've watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy, you know, they can do (laughs) specific procedures or these special stitches or X, Y, and Like a specialty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, specialty in it. But at the baseline, I'm expecting any single neurosurgeon or podiatrist or anyone to kind of have the same basic foundation. Yeah, Mm -hmm. building blocks that they learn. I feel like that's something our field is really lacking. Um, and I didn't realize that was even a thing until I bopped around to states. And then I still talk to people in different states. And it's really different, like how people are taking data, how people are graphing. Like mm-hmm. some people are using percentage. Some people are using rate. How can that be a hindrance or a benefit to our field when we're kind of just deciding things willy-nilly. And I get it. It's supposed to be individualized. It's supposed to be so significant for that individual. So maybe it's a byproduct of that. Mm -hmm. But there's some parts of me that are like, shouldn't we all know that if we were going to run a procedure, at least, at least if I'm taking it off the shelf, like, I Mm -hmm. feel like that's a term I learned in building a business. That's what like attorneys say. It's like an off the shelf contract, right? Right. If it's something off the shelf, I might take it because it looks good. And then I have to individualize it for who I'm working with. And Mm -hmm. I feel like we're good at taking things off the shelf. And then sometimes we miss the individualization piece or the reverse. We have like super individualized programming that may be in an area of like, is this really the best way to do it? Because now we've set ourselves up for having to do a parametric analysis on which components of this is working. Right. So that's been like a rewarding aspect, but it's also been something that I'm like, oh, this makes my mission even stronger of wanting to get as many different, not opinions, not views, but as many different individuals that love this field and want this field to always be better. Cause just like me working on my flexibility being better, our field has to be flexible and always be better with changing of what we're doing, what we see, how we treat things or how we look at things. And it's cool to watch that growth as well. Yeah. Cheers to that. Cause even in the same company, you could look at a program and it's completely different. And I don't mean the same way you're saying, I don't mean like individualized for the client. I mean, the BCBA runs it differently and then they train technicians differently. And thank goodness for technicians that they can be, they can work on their flexibility when, you know, one BCBA says it this way and the second one says it a completely different way. And I think a great example of something that at least I saw, because like when I was consulting, I was going to like probably 15 to 20 different schools every month as a consultant. And when I was in that role, one of the things that I saw the most overused and used many times incorrectly was 
the Omnibus Man or the Greg, Dr. Greg Hanley's My Way program. And that was something that really stuck out to me that I was like, okay, in certain contexts, I've been able to implement this program really well. And then in other contexts, you're watching it happen and you're like, wait, 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 why is this happening with this particular client? Right. And so this is my disclaimer that if you hear a podcast, you watch a CEU, you are not done learning about that topic. <laughs> Please do not start and to go implement things. You have right. to read more research. You have to find people that can help guide you to best, most ethically, most concisely, and I guess parsimoniously I should use instead of concisely mm -hmm. to then implement something like that. Because so often a new, quote unquote, <laughs> a new type Trend. of procedure mm -hmm. now. Yeah. And it's like, everyone's implementing it. We're all doing it, but everyone's doing it differently. And it's like, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. Imagine, I would really imagine that maybe if people reached out to the authors of the articles, maybe it's not Dr. Hanley, maybe they're reaching out to people that have used his research and are creating other research. Maybe you reach out to them. And mm -hmm. that was one thing I also learned about our field that if you message anybody that has written a research article, they're more than happy to respond. Mm -hmm. They're thrilled because that one, that means someone's reading their research and they're interested in all the time, effort, energy <laughs> that they put into it. Also, everyone wants to be able to disseminate and we should be really relying on those people to get our baseline information. Now that's not to say let's take everything off the shelf and use as is in a in a research right. uh, article because at the end of the day you have to look and see like is this research a from a sanitized environment? Is it only mm -hmm. done with males? Maybe you're working with females. Is it only done with a certain, I don't know, ethnicity, race, religion, right. age? You have to look at all of those even like you... demographic like in the yeah, country. There's, mm -hmm. yeah, there's so many and and I'm gonna I'll tangent in a second to that, but it's like how, I, like, let's use our people more. Let's use mm -hmm. all these people that are doing the empirically based research and reach out to them and say, Hey, I have a question. Do you have time? Maybe they don't, but maybe they have another, another individual, or mm -hmm. there's a bunch of like special interest groups or specific area subject matter experts. Like let's lean on them. Let's get mm -hmm. some like baseline foundational stuff. Um, and of course, I forgot to say what I what I wanted to to <laughs> mention. Oh, oh, the different areas. I always use this example where, in to me, my culture shock when being in Texas was that everyone's like, "Oh, bless her heart, bless his heart." Like <laughs> he's throwing that chair or something, or or oh, he's moving slowly today. It's one of those days in New York in the Department of Education public school system. Nobody bless nobody's heart. <laughs> yeah. We are not slow. It is New York city. You walk fast, you talk fast, you move fast. There's like no dawdling. And that was funny because right. when I moved back to New York, I almost went into cold, even though I'm from New York, I've lived in New York almost my entire life, except right. for living in Texas. And I remember coming back and being like, oh, right. It's not like slow. I have to adapt to the culture of the state that I'm in. Mm -hmm. It's a good point. I'll go off. It, it's a relevant tangent. So you say, like bless his heart, bless her heart, even that can change. Um, so Carissa or KP depends. I, I don't know which one she prefers, but Carissa knows behavior. Um, just posted a bunch of black and African-American idioms and how even those can change. So like, it's like everyone learns raining cats and dogs, but that is such like a white centered idiom. Whereas like bless her heart or bless his heart, 
doesn't always mean a positive thing. It could be an idiom of like, I forget exactly how she worded it, but like, oh, bless her heart, like almost like a slight of like, oh, she better watch out type of thing. And again, so it's like you take an idioms program trying to teach, you know, an autistic individual to not take things so literally or sarcasm and all that stuff. But then if you're not taking in the the cultural aspect of it and you're teaching them all these idioms that their family doesn't even know or or use that... <laughs> it's kind of like makes a whole program irrelevant at that point. That was also another thing that when I was in Texas, people were like, we know you're really nice and you're always willing to help out. But sometimes the way you talk is a little off-putting. And, um, and I had to ask, can you expand upon that? Mm-hmm. Is it my accent, which I've tried really hard my entire life to beat down that New York accent? Or is it something else? And they said, well, you'll look at me with a straight face and say something really sarcastic. <laughs> I didn't even realize I was doing that. Right. And would be like, how's your day? And, you know, I'm like the dog with the fire. And I'm like, it, you know, everything's fine. And I'd be like, I'm having a great day right now. And I would just say it with like a stoic kind of face. People would be like, ask me, are you upset? And I'm just, no, I'm just being sarcastic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's a good point. So you would say one of the most rewarding aspects is kind of being able to collaborate and coordinate with different people all over America and and other countries. Yeah. So I think that that's probably a rewarding aspect that I did not, a a place of reinforcement that I was not able to access previously that I am really Mm -hmm. glad. And I do feel like COVID did break down a lot of those walls that were kind of there anyway, because people started talking to other people that were across, you know, Mm -hmm. United States and beyond. Um, And that really allowed for our field, I think, to do some better dissemination and better stuff together, where I hope there's a lot more behavior analysts that are more willing to then reach out to somebody that might not be in their state um, or presenting at their ABBAs or their ABA conferences. I agree. I hope a lot of those barriers that were holding people back are are being kind of like dismantled. Yeah. So besides my two courses, what are some of your favorite CE courses? Well, I love my courses, which is the behavior camp series, obviously. And then we have I, I will say, uh, and this is like a special shout out for one of one of our partners, uh, Nicholas Mayo right there. Nicholas is an incredible human being who has opened my eyes up to sexual behavior analysis or SBA. We actually just started this joint venture with Study Notes ABA and their program, Empower to Center for Sexuality. I believe that I got their entire entire company title right. Um, And we have created a certificate program for behavior analysts that are interested in learning more about sexological behavior. So taking behavior analysis and looking at it when applying it to more sex-based issues, solutions, procedures. And that has been I would say a really, really rewarding aspect of what I've been doing. Um, I love when we're able to do ABA outside of the confines of a classroom, I would say. Mm -hmm. And so that for me has really been an enjoyable experience learning about so many different things, learning about different kinks, different communities, different kink communities. And I remember trying to explain to my parents like what we were doing. (laughs) They're super interested in what I'm doing because they're like, oh, 
how are we going to explain to our friends what she does now? Because she used to be in classrooms and that was easy for us. <laughs> and now she's like, I told them, I was like, oh, we're making a certificate program for like certified behavioral sexologists or CBS is what we're, we're calling it. And they're like, wait, you're teaching people about sex? And I'm like, yeah, because, you know, when you're working with an individual that's a child, they eventually become an adult. Right. And just like all adults, they have wants and needs that are not just solely based in what children have wants and needs in. And you get called right. into a program where you're like, this individual's hands are down their pants their entire time, or this individual is engaging in XYZ behaviors. This individual stumbled onto this website and is now asking questions about this, or we're mm-hmm. pioneering an individual. And let's say they're, they have male genitalia. They've now found that genitalia and it's really enjoyable to play with no matter what age. And my parents were both like shocked. They were like partially mortified, but also they, you know, I think that they realize that, oh, wow, it's not only just in the classroom. And mm-hmm. that's really what I wouldn't say there's one course, but I would say that that whole venture has been something that is really been interesting. And I mean, I love now I'm like thinking of other people's courses and I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> so that course, I think that every course on the website, at least I feel like I've had such an intimate time helping each content mm-hmm. in some way, shape or form building their course. I mean, you, you've made two courses with us. You kind of know the process. I, right. I love to be involved because I love to have everyone feel like they're supported. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I love what everyone produces because again, just like we all have different learning experiences and learning mm-hmm. history, everyone has something really special to bring, I think. And we've been really fortunate. We've had a ton of people on our website that have just rocked my world. You know, we have courses that are looking at attachment styles, a very mm-hmm. like private venti type thing, but we're looking at it through CMOR. Mm-hmm. And that to me just always like lights me up and stuff. Yeah. It's a good point because, I mean, you are very involved in not only like the vetting process, but then the development process and really all of it. The vetting, the developing, the editing, hyping people up. Yeah, I I feel like I do. I try and do everything that I wish that I would internally do for myself, like giving a ton of grace, you know, being patient, understanding, Mm -hmm. like one of my things, as you know, is I don't set deadlines for anyone Mm -hmm. because that can be, I feel like really aversive to set a deadline. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's got going on personally, nor do they have to tell me. I feel like one of the things that I didn't love so much was like, if I was going to call out, I felt like I had to give a good example, a good reason. And I'd never want anyone to feel like they have to share some intimate or personal or, you know, sad or even happy things. Like that's not my, that's not Mm -hmm. my business. If somebody wants to share that with me, of course, but even like through the process of creating CEUs, it's nice to get to know people Mm -hmm. and kind of what we're talking about with like getting to know people is just, I hop on a zoom with other BCBAs and we we talk, they tell me about what they like to do and we figure out how we can make it into a CEU. And that, that for me is, is really fun. And then you have me that I'm like, please set a deadline or I just will never do it. I said light. <laughs> so I always say, if you don't need it, you know, it's on a CMOR. <laughs> that, was, that was another thing that Leah I felt strongly about when creating this is because like, we didn't want people to feel like trapped into like things. Or even then having to come and present, trying to teach from an empty cup. Mm-hmm. I don't want somebody else to be like, oh, I have to like that CMOR. Oh, I have to teach on this day. I have to, I mm-hmm. have to. And so I really tried to take a lot of that away because that, that was stuff that I hated. Like I loved mm-hmm. teaching yoga 
but I hated the fact, I mean, I hated the fact that I had classes twice a week. <laughs> I, did. I wanted it to be more like when I was like in the moment and feeling it. And right. instead it was like twice a week, every week I had to do it. And there were so much stressors that were going on before I had to make the class. I had to remember the muscle alignments. Like it's the same thing in behavior analysis. Yeah. You have to remember what you're teaching, how the procedures are going to be implemented. What's your reinforcement and or punishment schedules or extension right. schedules. What mm-hmm. Where is it coming from? And so really this is just a fun, I call it an extracurricular for our content. I like how you put that. And speaking of that, of kind of that self-care, um, let's jump into our dessert. I only have one dessert today because I'm pretty full from that entree. But if you could tell us how you practice self-care and balancing life and work. Not well. I'm so bad at practicing self-care. The way that I found ways to do self-care is I have to slowly increase the response effort, I've realized for me. So um, I had back-to-back foot surgeries in the summer of 2021. And before that, I'd like kind of been, you know, going to the gym and working out because I realized that I feel better when I'm, uh, well, I know that why the reasons, because then endorphins are really (laughs) happy people don't kill their husbands. No, sorry. (laughs) Legally blonde quote in case. Yeah. Um, and I realized that that made me feel better. And when I changed my role to being working remotely, I realized that I loved the social aspect of being around people. So I had to find a replacement behavior, replacement, I guess, reinforcer that I could contact. And I realized that that was going to be doing some sort of body movement because I love my, my, my vision of self-care is laying on the couch for hours eating popcorn is really honestly my version <laughs> of self-care, but there's only so much of that that I can actually do, especially living in a state that gets cold and gloomy that mm-hmm. won't start to impact like my own mental health. Mm-hmm. So after my foot surgeries, I decided that I really, really wanted to start getting back into, uh, not only building my strength, physically, but also mentally. So I, I would say probably October, 2021, I go to the gym twice a week. I've been meaning to increase my response effort to uh, three times a week. And we're slowly like last week, I did it three times, but slowly. And again, I'm just giving myself a lot of grace. I think that Mm -hmm. that's something that I really struggled with giving myself when I was younger, (laughs) (laughs) now that I'm in my thirties. Um, but no, I really did struggle with giving, giving myself that yoga did used to force me to like zone out. Um, and that's really why I got into yoga. Cause it was an hour where I didn't have my phone. I really couldn't think about anything else, but the yoga poses, but then in New York, it was just such a, like Austin, it was so Zen to go to yoga. Like I would park my car. I would be so warm out. I would walk to the yoga studio, I would lay mm-hmm. out my mat and in New York, it's like, you know, it's the hustle and bustle doesn't stop into a yoga studio. Mm-hmm. So I define new ways to kind of do self-care. So I always, on Mondays and Wednesdays, I always have myself at least attempt to go to the gym. And that's been really good uh, for me. And again, it's really just about like feeling better, I think, doing things that make me feel better. And I'll even decide, and this is like a new freedom thing that I'm working on. Like if in the middle of the day, I want to go walk to like Walgreens or a supermarket or something and get Cheez-Its, I'm going <laughs> and I'm walking and I'm going <laughs> I felt like when I was in a non-remote setting, I 
it was really difficult for me. And I think that's all the imposter syndrome, type A perfectionist tendencies that I have that I really like, I was, you know, making myself, <laughs> my colleagues used to call them sad salads. Like mm. I would just have like a sad, sad salad every single day for lunch. And I realized that there were so many things that I was withholding from myself. Mm. And then I had to look at behaviorally and say, okay, I have a huge EO for like all of this stuff doesn't make me feel good because Mm -hmm. I never, I'm restricting myself on all of this way too much. So I need to, the only way to get the AO established is by allowing myself to satiate on these things. And that balance is helpful. I recently bought a a Theragun dupe off of Amazon, which was a great, Mm -hmm. I was very happy about that. Um, I'm trying to think what other self-care things, sometimes I'll sleep late. And that's not something that I could have obviously ever really done when working in a school or a clinic, but sometimes now, because my work, I might be working like this weekend, for example, we have two live or the weekend that you and I are talking about this, we have two (laughs) live events coming up. And so I know I'm going to be working all weekend. So this week I'm taking it a little easier on Mm -hmm. some of the week because I know I'm going to be working all day Saturday and all day Sunday. And then to roll that into working then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that's just going to be too much. So really being able to try and balance that, or even some things that I try and do is if I wake up late, then I know, okay, I'm going to be up till nine, 10 o'clock tonight. And I'm going to be working on stuff. That's just the, the give and the take. And I, a big thing I would also say is just like listening to my body to it. When I, again, it's, it goes all back to like the inflexible <laughs> time-based <laughs> If I am going to the gym to work out, I'm like, I have to do better than yesterday. I have to do better than yesterday. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily true. Like, I don't right. really do better than yesterday. And those were a lot of things. I don't know if it's like age or like nearing burnout or just trying to like different things and seeing that that didn't work. And I am not a what what is a new TikTok trend five to nine for my nine to five. I am mm-hmm. never. I wish I was that person. I wish I could wake up at 5 a.m. and get like all of this stuff done. But instead, I've actually learned that I kind of enjoy working on Saturdays and Sundays because not a lot of people are working. So I don't get a lot of emails. So I can actually just concentrate on a lot of the things that maybe during the week I wasn't able to get to. I think that's terrible advice for somebody working in a clinic or a school. (laughs) I would hate myself (laughs) for hearing someone say that. Um, I'm not telling everyone to quit their jobs, but I am saying to work on your flexibility with your expectations of things. So like, if, I don't know, like if you have a class that you like to do, see if you're, you know, if they, if your client or your boss or obviously not good for classroom, but if you're in a clinic, like if you don't have clients through a certain time, like, why can't you do a little bit of work from home? Like, why can't you advocate for yourself or at least just ask? I mean, they're Mm -hmm. probably going to say no. Maybe, but, but you don't know unless you ask. I don't know. You really don't. And that, I wish I, I worked better at, at at advocating for myself in that manner and just asking for things like being, Liat calls this chutzpah day. <laughs> Yiddish means like balls or like, you know, you're, you're doing something really ballsy. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that that's correct Yiddish translation, um, mm-hmm. but that's how, how we interpret it these days. Having a lot of guts, I think that's what it is or yeah. something. Moxie or whatever, neither here mm-hmm. nor there. It's not And so I think that if I was able to like channel my chutzpah dick more and like ask for things, then it would be 
maybe I wouldn't have felt so burnt out or maybe I could have, there could have been an option. Oh, actually you can do this or you can do that. Or I just always assumed that the answer would be no, because like everyone was stretched too thin. We had so many clients and this was happening and this person was leaving and that person was leaving. And I cared more about the clinic running smoothly than I did about myself. Mm. So that's something that I've started to try and practice more is like, uh, again, can't pour from an empty cup. You have to put yourself first. Like you can care deeply about a company, like the company I work for, they, I hope they know, I I think they listen. I care deeply about it, but I can't put a company or a person ahead of myself because there will be no self basically. I was recently asked, uh, because I've been doing these like snack box, you know, like reviews on my Instagram. And sometimes they're in the middle of the day. And someone asked me like, what do you, do you work? And I took a little offense to it because I'm like, oh, I work. Like, trust me, girl, I'm putting in the hours. But I do in-home and so, and I completely control my schedule. So there might be like today, we're we're recording on a Monday and I had a handful of things to do and a parent meeting that was canceled. So we're recording instead. <laughs> For me, what helps me in my self-care is like being able to control my day, control my schedule. And um, yeah, that might mean that I go supervise a basketball game this weekend, but everything's flexible and it's however I decide to fill up my cup. And and I think too, with a lot of us that are working, at least in the more clinical sense where you might be working with families and things, I think that they enjoy, like, I, I remember I was going on vacation and um, when I was still in Texas and someone was like, oh, are you going home to visit your family? And I was like, no, actually I'm going to Colorado to go to <laughs> as a friend of mine. And they were like, good for you. You mm-hmm. know, like we're canceling our sessions or instead we're going to have a sub <laughs> the arrangement was at the time. And right. I always felt guilty. Like how could I let down this client and go away and take mm-hmm. two days off work like that? that would, you know, not be good. Like, what are they going to do? And then that also, I realized that then my client will be able to work on flexibility. Maybe it won't be a good day. Maybe it won't be a great session. Maybe it'll not be great, but then I'm coming back from that trip over the weekend and I'm, I'm back in it. I'm like, you know, energized. Rejuvenated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, would you rather me super burnt out or would you rather me in a place where I'm refreshed and renewed. And I mean, I've yet to take a time off and be like that refreshed or renewed, but it <laughs> in theory, it might be possible. Yeah. In theory, I'm, I'm sure there are people that go on vacation and they come back. Meanwhile, I'm like unpacking right away when I get home. I'm doing <laughs> the laundry. I have like instantly a million chores to do. Like I'm like dusting. But again, at least I had that time. Well, then you just, you just add a, another day in between. Like you get back and then you have a day for chores and grocery shopping. And And that's, that's what I've learned too. And something else on like taking time off is Liliat and I call this the uh, Jordan gets hit by a bus plan. Um, (laughs) When I create an idea or a system of something or a flow, maybe it's uploading courses, maybe it's the flow of content contributors, like from initial, like talking through the Mm -hmm. whole process. And when I do that for the first time, I make a task analysis. That's like Mm -hmm. a big thing. I think that would probably be my biggest self-care task is making 
analysis for tasks that I'm doing. So then if I do take time off, either somebody can, not right now, not in this setting, but like if I were to take time off, if I was in a school setting or in a clinical setting, then I can mm-hmm. just hand my PAs to the people that are subbing in for me. And then I can provide that to them. And then I can actually like enjoy my time mm-hmm. or I can know that then I can take the time off because I've already done this instead of feeling, cause that was another big thing when I would take time off, I would feel stressed mm-hmm. that the person that was covering for me would be overwhelmed. Like mm-hmm. I am a empath and I would be so nervous that they would be like mad at me because my, they didn't have enough information on mm-hmm. this man repertoire that had been tweaked a few times for this particular client. I call that um, when past Rosie takes care of future Rosie, I do a lot of like contingency, not contingency plans, but I'll like set myself up. So then when that future date comes, I'm like, oh, I did half of the work already. And I have already forgotten like a, like a progress report. As soon as I submit a progress report, it's been approved and everything. I immediately start on the next one and just fill out the basic information So then six months later, I've already forgotten that I did that. I pull it up and I go, yeah, past Rosie. Like, thank you so much. (laughs) You just cut like an hour out of my day that I thought I had to like start from scratch. So yeah, very important. I also play a lot of Sudoku, Candy Crush and Solitaire. I feel like in my downtime, I can't do nothing. So I found, I've tried to find games, games where there's problem solving required. And I have Mm. to, it might be like, not with Sudoku so much, but like, when I am playing it, like that answer might look right to me, but it might be wrong. And then mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I got it wrong. And I messed up my whole board. And now I got to do it again. So that I feel like that has kind of helped me wrap my husband. He laughs at me when I say I'm working on my flexibility when I'm playing Sudoku, but I think it's helpful. That's not empirically based. That's solely anecdotal. <laughs> I love that. I, I do similar, like I'm still using my like Duolingo for French. And my husband's like, well, we already went to Montreal and like, that's already passed. Like, why are you still doing it? And I'm like, because like, cause I'm not going to stop. I'm on, I'm up to, I don't even know, like 165 day streak. Like, I'm not going to stop that streak. He's like, oh, is it because you love learning? And I was like, well, yeah, that's part of it. But also I'm competitive with myself and I'm not going to break that streak for anything. Yeah. We are getting to our nightcap. So I always like to ask if there's anything I should have asked you and I didn't, anything that you want to mention about yourself or um, CEUs by Study Notes ABI. I feel like an unintentional aspect of this has been like, we got to be more flexible with ourselves. And I'd wonder where that rigidity comes from. Is it from, not from our clients, I don't mean it to sound like, is it from our clients, but is it from our fields where we have to like look at the procedure and implement the procedure exactly Mm -hmm. as is? Again, maybe it's like circular reasoning, but (laughs) like what comes first? Right. Is it people that are more inflexible and maybe not type, I don't want to say type A because I know a lot, there are a lot. It's like analytical, like very- Yeah, people that mm-hmm. hold themselves to really high standards, I guess I would mm-hmm. say, and like, mm-hmm. are maybe competitive. <laughs> like, is that why we get into the data field? Or does that come out once we're in the data field? I don't know. It's mm-hmm. it's, in, it's like food for thought, I guess. Food for thought. Love it. Yeah, that sounds like a good research study too. Not Not like you need to take on anything, but I wonder if we could find any journal articles of people or even like dissertation 
papers of people talking about that. Because mm-hmm. I know that the population is, I mean, more diverse than it's been, I guess. It's not like mm-hmm. not an outlook into like our country as a whole, I guess our country, because like the BACB is now only really in North America or mm-hmm. the United States, I should say. Or if that's just something that, I don't know, like, is it because you have to go get a master's degree? Is it because you then have to mm-hmm. study for the where everything is like specifically laid out? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe one of the people listening will be able to uh, yeah. look into that. And hit me up. Let me know what your research finds. <laughs> yes. Please comment your ideas or research. <laughs> Talking about commenting on social media, are there any social media platforms um, where listeners can find out more about you or the CEUs that Study Notes puts on? Um, well, definitely our at Study Notes ABA Instagram account. That's where you can find all the stuff about CEUs. I will say, and maybe this is a little bit of self-care. I will say that when it comes to finding me personally, and this is not against anybody, I really try and keep my personal social media platforms kind of to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like, and I don't know if you feel this way, Rosie, because you also run a social media platform. I feel like there's so much that I give. Maybe it's not, you don't see that it's directly me, but -hmm. I feel like there's so much that I give in social media that I'm like, I want some of my, my personal stuff Mm -hmm. to stay personal. Yeah. Those kind of boundaries. Yeah. I made a hard and fast rule for myself that I don't answer. And I do apologize if you've tried to message me over Facebook, because I have a ton of message requests, but I made a rule when, when I started putting myself out there through, you know, the study notes, Instagram and Facebook and everything that I really would, if anyone wants to contact me, you can email me CEU at studynotesaba.com. I'm more than happy to hop on a zoom call with somebody, but I would say you definitely, you can attempt to follow me, but I won't, I won't allow you to follow me and I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Not sorry. Anything raunchy. There's actually, I in the process of just like deleting my, my social footprint right now. Mm -hmm. Um, just for, for me. Yeah. I guess that's one of my self-care things, I guess. Email me through CEU at studynotesaba.com. I'm happy to talk. There you go. Yeah. I'll, I'll put up your email and the website and just the study notes, Instagram. And that's good. That's, I mean, I, I sometimes feel it when I get questions like, what do you, what do you do? Do you work? A lot of times people are seeing five minutes out of my day, you know, like, especially if it's my face, I, I don't really do like re-recordings or anything, just what's out there. I posted a lot yesterday because we did like a, a donut review on my Instagram and I progressively looked more haggard as the day went on. Um, and I explained it in my stories. I won't throw it on the podcast. Um, but I'm just like, this, this is five minutes out of my day. You don't know what the rest of my day looks like. Um, and I'm okay with that. I fully support everyone, anyone, you, everyone having their own personal, keeping those boundaries up. That was actually something I learned from Liat. I remember her always being like, people, so many people are messaging my personal Instagram, my personal Facebook, my personal, well, no, message her personal LinkedIn, please. Because she has a ton of followers and we market through there. LinkedIn fair game for Liat. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that's, that's something that we're really trying to adopt. Like, I think a lot of us at Study Notes ABA is, you know, we can use the company platform as a way to Mm -hmm. really reach 
people and and really disseminate the science, but having it, there has, I guess, also working for yourself, there has to be some sort of, I need like discrimination between real life, not real life, real life and fake life. (laughs) What's on social (laughs) media and what's happening. I know, but we, we always do be real in general when we are on, even on Instagram, it is real life. So Jordan, thank you for sharing a bite with us. Um, I'm going to put all of those links up and then also you'll have a little page on my uh, website uh, all about your CU endeavors. And then also stay tuned if you've made it to the end of this podcast. My third CU event should be coming out we'll say around April, maybe in April. And you can also find me on Instagram at rosieeatsbx or my website, rosiebx.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and subscribe. And until our next meal, bye.